Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, I'm Ella Risbridger. I'm the author of Midnight Chicken and Other Recipes Worth Living For. Um, it's out now, or very shortly, in America, and it's been out in the UK since January. Um, it's mostly a cookbook, but it's also got a lot of chatting in as well. I'm quite a chatty person. One of the things that makes Midnight Chicken such a very good book is how hard it is to say exactly what it is. Yes, to be sure, it's a cookbook, but it's also a manual for living and a declaration of hope. That is a quote from Nigella Lawson. Now, did you set out to write a manual for living? I don't think I set out to do anything, really. I set out to write a list of recipes. I set out to write a kind of... um... I suppose I set out to write it more like a diary, uh, you know, the chatting parts. I set, set out to write about what made my life worth living because it was a really useful way of reminding myself, you know, this is what's good. This is how it works. Um, I don't think I set out to do it, but then I suppose it's always very hard at this end of a project to look back and think, well, what did I, what did I mean when I started? Particularly this project has been five years in the making. And it's very hard to look back at yourself five years ago and think, what was I trying to do? What did I want to achieve? I certainly wanted to make something that reiterated to myself, if nothing else, I guess the value of being alive, the value of keeping going, the value of trying hard every day. But ultimately, I wrote the book because I was writing these things down for myself. Were you surprised at how much this resonated with people? Yeah, I was really surprised. I think everyone always says that. But I I was surprised when I first wrote the blog that people really seemed to love it. When it became a book, I I thought some people would like it. I really, I was quite like, oh, for sure. I think a handful of people will like this. I don't think it will be a terrible failure for Bloomsbury, for the publishers. I did not expect this response because it's had, I mean, <laughs> it's hard to talk about your own book, but it's had some really lovely reviews. It's, as you, you read a quote from Nigella Lawson, which I think is every cookbook writer's main dream. Yeah. And I have been amazed at the, I've been amazed at the number of people who have cared about this book and who have found it useful. I didn't expect the number of stories. I didn't expect to get so many letters and emails and texts and, you know, Instagram messages or whatever to detail all the very complex and very private ways this book has helped people. I didn't expect that. I don't think anyone could. And I think you'd be mad to write a book and think you'd done that. When I was contacted by your publicist, I said yes immediately. When I heard that this cookbook was a combination of recipes and reflection, talk a bit about the first story you ever wrote, which was about a chicken. So it's very interesting when people ask me this now, because it's a story I've told a lot. And when you tell a story a lot, what happens is you don't know whether you're remembering what actually happened or your many, many times you told the story. You know, it's very hard for me to know now whether I actually have a memory of this actual chicken, or maybe I just have a memory of writing about it. So the first thing I ever wrote about food was a, actually the first thing I ever wrote about food on a blog was actually a very long recipe for parsnip soup, which was full of jokes. And it was on a different blog. I think it was on a Tumblr. You know, I've always blogged on the internet. I'm really an internet person. I grew up with the internet and writing on the internet. And I remember that, this is not something I've talked about really in interviews, but I remember writing that recipe for parsnip soup and feeling, oh yeah, I could, I, I like this. I like writing like this. And then I became very anxious and very depressed, which is a big part of the book for people who are listening who haven't read it. Um, it's a, really, it's a memoir about anxiety and depression, but you don't really know that unless you're 
looking closely. And I wrote about a roast chicken I'd made one day when I felt particularly unhappy, particularly as if the world was running away from me. And I wrote it. I put it on Twitter, as I did put all of my life on Twitter at that point. And uh, yeah, it just really took off from there. Describe the day after your 21st birthday and the number 25 bus. I'd really rather not. Like, okay. Um, I'm happy to talk about why not, if that helps. Um, so I don't know. I don't really know what the American regulations are, but over here we have this organization called the Samaritans. Do you have that? No. What's that? So the Samaritans is essentially a suicide helpline. You can ring them at any point. I myself have rung them twice. Uh, I would say they weren't useful, except that I'm still here and I, you really ring them when you're at lowest step. But they issue these guidelines for how you talk about suicide. And they were something I really considered when I was writing this book. You'll know this, you read it, there's very few details about self-harm or about suicide because I don't think it's helpful. It's, I, it can give people ideas, it can give people inspiration, it can make vulnerable people feel even more vulnerable. Briefly, what happened is that after my 21st birthday, I really thought I would kill myself and I tried and I very luckily failed and I was taken to hospital and the hospital were fantastic. The NHS were amazing and immediately got me into crisis care, which given that I lived in a very poor, very overworked bit of London, really I look back and I'm like, that was a miracle. That was a complete miracle. You had no right to expect such amazing, quick crisis care, but I got it. Um, but I don't like to dwell on the actual suicide attempt in the same way I don't write about self-harm because I don't think it's useful. Everyone can imagine that. What I think is helpful is to say, this is how I got better. I don't think I need to say, this is what the lowest ebb actually looked like. I, I would rather sort of just say, well, it happened and here's what happened next. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I really think you were brave for talking about that and brave for showing, hey, I got through it. I'm on the other side. Uh, thank you. Um, it didn't. All I can say is that it didn't seem to me brave. It seemed to me necessary. I have always written about things that happened to me. And when bad things have happened to me, I've written about them too. Because I am an Instagram generation. I love Instagram. I use it all the time. I did all of my growing up on Twitter, as I think a lot of people did, but I was particularly too much online. And um, I think probably because I came from this place where blogging and tweeting and being very open even though when I obviously first started using social media, I was sort of not under my own name because no one was. Everyone just had an Instagram, everyone just had a username. And I think because I came from this place of talking very openly about it, it seemed to me that the only thing to do was to continue and that actually being open might be a good thing. We're certainly in a place now where openness about mental health is definitely, at least on paper, very much celebrated. I don't know if it's the case. I think there are probably thousands of people, millions of people in situations where they can't talk openly about their mental health, which to me gives me a kind of sense of responsibility in that I can do it. I can do it without threat to my job. I can do it without threat to my relationships. I can talk openly about what it is like to be suicidal. And then I can talk about, well, hey, here is what happens when it got better. Here is what it felt like for me to get better. Something I'm really passionate about talking about now is what recovery looks like and what recovery really feels like. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. You know, it's trite, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. It's mm -hmm. something I personally find incredibly helpful. This too shall pass. I think about it all the time. It does. Everything passes. The great, the good things pass, the bad yep. things pass. That's the one inevitable thing is that, well, something else will happen. On a lighter note... I love how you believe in bad cooking and experimental cooking and giving it a go cooking. Talk a little bit about that. 
oh my God, I think it's the only kind of cooking. I don't think there's any joy to be had in, you know, there's something, you know, okay, maybe it's fine. Like follow a recipe, do it perfectly. That's quite nice. But making something, trying something, being like, oh, I've seen these things in the supermarket and maybe I'll just Google around and find a recipe. Maybe I'll try this. Maybe I'll try that. I worry that people treat cooking too seriously. I worry that people treat, but then I think people treat making anything very seriously. I think people treat making art seriously. They treat making music seriously. They treat writing seriously. And I think they're meant to be fun. You're meant to just have a go with all of it. It doesn't matter if it's bad. You know, obviously there are a huge number of people for whom wasting food is an impossible luxury, but they're probably not the people buying my book, to be honest. Um, Because if it's an impossible luxury, you're probably not buying a large hardback cookbook with a million very beautiful, exquisite watercolours. I didn't do the watercolours. This is why I can be very, very boastful about them. Elisa Cunningham is the illustrator and they are just fantastic. Um, But for most people who are in a position to be buying a cookbook and thinking about that cookbook, the people who tend to get, who I think, um, not who it's aimed at, but certainly the people who I think are most likely to come across my work are people who have some spare time or they have some spare money and they can afford to relax a little bit about cooking, to try and to play and to see, because the worst that happens is you have to get a takeaway. Like the worst that happens is you have toast. You'll live for one meal. You can just eat, you can have toast. It will be fine if it goes wrong. And the thing is, it probably won't go that wrong. The stakes are very low in cooking. It's just food. I thought you were going to say the stakes are low for toast. (laughs) Oh God, the stakes, I mean, the stakes are so low for toast. I mean, I would live (laughs) off toast. It's a real, you know, I'm a cookbook writer. I'm a cook. I... I really would just live off toast. Marmite toast, it's the best food in the world. This is probably not something Americans know about. No. Don't care about very much, but it's the dream. It's toast a very English thing, butter is our dream over here. You put butter on the toast and then you put a little bit of Marmite. The problem, the, the problem, with, a lot, the problem with Marmite is that people put too much on. It's just meant to be like a little savory hint with the butter. Oh, it's dreamy. <laughs> um, you think breakfast foods are the best foods. Talk about bacon sandwiches with red sauce and sausage sandwiches with brown sauce. Never red. Now, what's the red sauce that goes with your bacon sandwiches? Ketchup. Oh. Ketchup. ketchup and brown sauce is HP, which is like a, uh, it's very hard to explain to Americans. It's like Houses of Parliament sauce. I don't think it's got anything to do with Houses of Parliament. It's kind of like a steak sauce. It's ki- kind of. It's kind of like a Worcester sauce, I guess. Okay. It's kind of a little bit like that. Um everybody weirdly I was talking about this with my flatmate this morning because I had a bacon sandwich with ketchup for breakfast because um I went to a birthday party yesterday and this morning I was like I'm too fragile I need a bacon sandwich and a large cup of tea um (laughs) my flatmate was like oh why would you put ketchup in a bacon sandwich that's horrible ketchup is for sausage sandwiches and we realized that everybody has their own complicated what makes a perfect bacon sandwich what makes a perfect sausage sandwich I like making very sweeping statements about this is what you must do because I think they're they're so obviously hyperbolic that it really gives people something to kind of push back against and fight against and I think it's part of the same thing we were just talking about in not taking things too seriously when I say never red sauce no nothing you must never do this I think it's so obvious to me that it's a bit silly and a bit flippant that anyone would make this kind of sweeping grand statement about you know a breakfast food that it kind of invites the reader to challenge it and to be like, no, that's not what I think at all. And then once you're having a sort of friendly fight about ketchup, 
you're kind of already into relaxing into thinking about food and the way we eat and the way different people eat different things and the way we have different different relationships to authenticity which is, i think a really interesting question you know i find the quest for authenticity in food to be one that is a kind of purist and essentialist view which is less fun than trying stuff and mixing stuff together and kind of mixing ingredients and seeing what happens i can honestly tell you i've never shed a tear reading a cookbook a lot of people tell me that okay which is a very weird thing to have a lot of people tell me they've cried while listening to this podcast not listening to this podcast. <laughs> so sorry a lot of people tell me they've cried while reading my book oh and my gosh it feels like a huge responsibility and I never quite know what to say people are very invested in a way that I never expected but feels very moving I to have all these people who care about me and who also see themselves reflected in or maybe a way they didn't before you know I am not a minority in the publishing industry I am a white woman who went to a nice school and um, has anxiety. There are lots of women like me in the publishing industry. But for whatever reason, my story and the story I've told in this book has really struck a chord with lots of people in ways that perhaps other stories haven't. And that feels like a huge responsibility and a huge privilege. And it's not one I take lightly at all. Every time someone shares a story with me about why this book touched them or why, or why they feel about it the way they do, Every time I'm moved, I'm never, I don't ever take it for granted and I never would. So um, last night I made your recipe for trashy ginger beer chicken on page 102. You call this proper grubby food that tastes like absolute scandal. (laughs) Use, (laughs) Use paper plates and don't try to gussy it up. Describe this dish. It's like a sticky chicken drumstick recipe. It's got like sesame seeds in it. It's very like slightly Chinesey flavors. Um, I guess this is part of, part of what I was talking about earlier with authenticity. There's no way that dish is authentic to anyone at all. You know, I got part of it out of a, I think I got the idea from some Vietnamese chicken wings, but I ended up using ginger beer because my late partner couldn't have any alcohol because he was immune compromised. So I ended up being like, oh, ginger beer, that'll be better. Um, I just think it's, it tastes like late night chicken for me. I don't know if late night chicken's a thing in America, but in London, late night chicken, late night fried chicken is the thing. The chicken shops stay open past everything else. And, you know, you get like the bus home and get some late night chicken and it's so bad, but so great. <laughs> now to my segment called My Last Meal. What would you have for your last supper? I would have pho, like the Vietnamese broth with all the noodles and red beef. And then I would have two pieces of Marmite toast. If that came across as very pat, that's because I was having this conversation on the train on the way in. Um, oh, really? Sorry, really prepared. Anyway, go on with your question. Usually people aren't prepared and they have to hem and haw for a few minutes. That was good. <laughs> you were ready. Straight up Vietnamese food all the way and then some toast. <laughs> Where can we find you on the web and social media? So my Twitter is at Miss Ellabel, M-I-S-S-E-L-L-A-B-E-L-L. I've sort of taken a big step back from being online. I am on Instagram, um, which is at Ella Bridger, I think. Yeah, at Ella Bridger on Instagram. And I do post there sometimes. But I'm really trying to take a step back. And I really recommend it, even if just for a few weeks. Try it. I can read books again now, which uh, I stopped being able to do for ages. And I'm testing recipes and 
working on new projects. At the end of Midnight Chicken, you wrote three last things. Number one, wash up as you go along. Number two, if it smells fine, it's probably fine. And number three, it's probably all going to be fine in the end. Words to live by. Thanks so much, Ella, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Follow Susie Chase on Instagram at Cookery by the Book and subscribe at cookerybythebook.com or in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Cookery by the Book Podcast, the only podcast devoted to cookbooks since 2015.